0: Never have I appreciated Alan McDonald more. <laughs> you know, seriously, I, I do feel bad for the guy. He, I was always on him, train up some alternates, train up some alternates, and he did. He trained up two alternates, and they both moved away. <laughs> so if you have musical chops and want to join the praise team, hey, we want to we wanna talk to you. And this morning, let's continue thinking about Philippians. A quick prayer. Father, thank you for this day. God, we thank you that we can join together and worship you. God, we praise you that we have your word to know what you are like, to know the gospel, and to know how we are to live. God, I pray you would give us wisdom today as we look to your word. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth and guard these ears, that only your truth would remain in their hearts. God, direct our hearts this morning. Have your perfect work in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And he charged Adam with overseeing the garden, and he gave him one tree that he couldn't eat from. But the ancient serpent tempted our first parents to eat from that very tree. They doubted God's instruction and ate from the tree, and sin entered the world so that everything and everyone is tainted by sin and rebellion from that day. And God could have destroy, destroyed the world on the spot. He could have wiped us out and it would have been just, but instead He was gracious and He gave humanity a promise. The promise of a coming Redeemer, one who would crush the head of the serpent, a one who would be born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But from sin, the world grew darker. It grew in corruption. It grew darker with sin and rebellion, and God decided he would destroy the world, all but except for one family, Noah's family, in which he did. He preserved Noah's family. He destroyed the world, and God promised Noah that he would not destroy the earth again until the promise of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. And he placed a rainbow in the sky to, to, as a sign of his faithful promise to this covenant. But after the flood, once again, the world grew dark with sin and, with re- and rebellion, and God decided that he would call one man to himself, one man that from him he would make his chosen people. God called Abraham, and he promised Abraham that from him all the world would be blessed. God called Abraham and promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. And he promised that this would happen no matter what by taking up both ends of the covenant on himself. When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, God kept his promise and brought them out. And he made a covenant with these people in the wilderness. And God promised that they were his chosen people. And he gave them the Old Testament law, but not the ability to keep its requirements. And Israel failed to keep its requirements. They failed, and the law revealed their sin. But once Israel had entered the promised land, and they had a king, one of the kings, King David decided to build a temple for God. He said to himself, he said, you know, I've conquered all my enemies, all the enemies around us, and I have built myself a nice house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant is just in a ratty old tent. I'm going to build the Lord a house. And what did God say to him? God said, you're going to build me a house? No. I'm going to build you a house. I am going to build you a spiritual house and one of your descendants, a kingdom will come from you and one of your descendants will be a king that will rule forever. God promised David that from him would come an eternal king. And all of these promises, all of these covenants that we read in the Old Testament are building to a better covenant. And the Old Testament hints about this coming covenant when we read in the prophets. We read in Jeremiah, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. We read that in Jeremiah. And then in Ezekiel we read that this new covenant will be a covenant of peace. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take your stony heart of flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will take out of your flesh a stony heart, and put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments, and do them. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant." A new covenant, an unending covenant. And in the new covenant, we see is instituted by our Lord at the Lord's Supper, where we read in Luke, in the same way, he took the cup of the supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Friends, the new covenant is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, because they find their yes and amen in Christ's. In the New Covenant, we find the apex of God's redeeming work. And this morning, I want you to know from our passage that if you're here and you are in Christ, you are a part of this New Covenant. Church, the Bible states that if you are redeemed, if you have God's Spirit within you, that you are His chosen people. If you turn with me in your copy of God's word to Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Picking up where we left off last week, we read In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. In this passage, we find three attributes of God's people. We see that as God's people, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Jesus Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi to promote gospel-centered unity for the sake of advancing the gospel. And last week, we saw that he gave us examples of, of walking Uh, in the faith, and we saw Timothy, and we saw Epaphroditus. And Paul is writing this letter from prison, and despite the fact that he is writing from prison, joy saturates the letter. Even in our transition today, again, we see the word rejoice. Joy, rejoice, is used 16 times by Paul in this letter alone. In fact, some people call it the letter of joy because he uses it so much. And this rejoice is as we move from chapter 2 into chapter 3, serves as a traditional transitional movement. Here we are moving from the examples of selflessness of Timothy and Epaphroditus to the selfishness of the false teachers. And Paul shows us a problem. He says you've got to be on guard against these people. Where we have the selflessness of these two faithful men, be on guard against these people, dogs. Evil workers. It's not three different groups, but a description of one group, the dogs, the evil workers, the people who mutilate the flesh because Philippi had a Judaizing problem. What is a Judaizer? Well, Judaizers were converted Jews who taught that Gentile Christians had to be circumcised to keep the, and keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. So it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus keeping the law. And this teaching caused a lot of trouble in the early church. And and Paul says these yelping dogs are leading you astray. Arguing that God's people earned religious merit through doing moral works and practices and keeping and having circumcision. But then Paul says here, he says, Church, you are the circumcision. Not those who mutilate the flesh, but you are the circumcision. And throughout his writings, Paul tells us that keeping the Old Testament law is of no advantage because Christ has fulfilled its requirements on our behalf. The Hebrews, the teacher of Hebrews says, Jesus is better in the Old Testament covenant. The old covenant is now obsolete. In Galatians, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. But then in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the Israel according to the flesh. The Israel of God, the Israel according to the flesh. Those who seek to fulfill the law themselves. And he argues that those who put their faith in Christ, those who are in Christ, they are the heirs to all of these promises in the Old Testament. Simply being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a part of God's people. (coughs) In Romans 9, 6, we read that not all who are descendant from Israel are Israel. And he argues that circumcision is unnecessary and keeping the law does not make you a part of Abraham's family. Being in Christ is what makes you a part of Abraham's family. And today we want to think about what it means to be a part of Abraham's family. And the first thing we see is that the people of God worship by the Spirit of God, we see this in verse three. We are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. So, what does it mean to worship by the Spirit of God? Well, in John four twenty four, we read that God is Spirit, and that those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. So God is spirit. He is divine. He is unseen. He is life-giving. He chooses how He will reveal Himself to His creation. And we know that God became flesh, the second member of the Trinity. God the Son became flesh and revealed Himself in Christ. And that Christ baptizes His people in the Holy Spirit, John 1.33. That unless a person is born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Throughout the New Testament, we see that every Christian since Pentecost is indwelt with the Spirit. Remember, that's why we talked about we don't have to pray, Holy Spirit, you can come here. Because if you're a Christian and you're here, the Holy Spirit is here. You're indwelt with Him. The Holy Spirit marks us as God's possession. We see that in Ephesians 1. That the Holy Spirit on us marks us as this one is mine. God says, that one belongs to me. He has my Spirit within him. And we see that God is spirit, and he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Whereas the Jews believe that worship took place at a specific place, and a specific geographical position in Jerusalem, we see that Christian worship is empowered by God's spirit, and it is centered on Christ Jesus. The true Christian worship matters not where it's offered. It matters not outward forms and if certain ceremonies are done or if your pastor tries to lead a song and he just butchers it true christian worship is focused on christ god's people are those who worship by the spirit of god and their focus is on jesus second we see that god's people boast in christ a key distinction of god's people is that we exalt in god the son We praise Jesus Christ. The church glorifies in Christ. We must boast in His finished work, not in what we do. Christ is the center of our worship. Christ is the center of all of our praise and our adoration. Friends, that's why we will never, as as long as the elders that are here now are here, we will never come in here and watch movies on Sunday morning. We will never come up here and talk heartwarming TED Talks to help you Five tips to improve your daily life, to make your week better this week. I'm not going to read Chicken Soup for the Soul to try and find something heartwarming to tell you, friends, we are going to focus on Christ. Because Christ died for us. Because we are a people only because the Father ordained our salvation through Christ. We are only a church because the Holy Spirit applied the finished work of Jesus Christ to us. We are going to focus on Christ. Christ is the eternal Son of God. All things were created through Him. Christ humbled Himself to become flesh, to walk among us. Christ is the only truly obedient human being. He is the only one who perfectly lived and fulfilled the law. Christ died as substitutionary atonement on our behalf, taking the just punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. Christ was buried, and Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to heaven and is at the Father's right hand, and Christ will one day come back for His elect friends. That is the focus of our worship today. The Bible says, of Christians, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And friend, if you're here this morning and you want to focus on any other thing, I implore you to repent and believe the gospel. Turn from yourself. Turn from your agenda. Turn from desiring other things. Turn from wanting fulfillment through the world and turn to Christ. He is the one we worship. He is the one who died for us. As the hymn writer wrote, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. We worship in spirit. We glory in Christ. If our boasting is rightly placed, we boast in Christ because there is no room for boasting in ourselves. The third thing we see in this passage is that God's people put no confidence in the flesh. That is a key distinction of any worldly religion is a tendency to boast in one's effort. Look at what I did. I got up earlier than everyone else. I don't do these things. I do do these things. I have a confidence in myself in what I do. I should be accepted because look what I do. Friends that's a key distinction of worldly religion. Boasting in your effort is in opposition to the person and work of Jesus Christ because we boast in what he has done, what he has accomplished, that we were unworthy and unable, and yet he died for us while we were still sinners. Boasting in yourself subverts the gospel Confidence in your upbringing or your worldly distinction undermines the uniting power of the gospel. Friends, here we don't boast in ourselves and we don't boast in our worldly distinctions because we see in the scripture Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, king, serf, none of that matters. All of these have been surpassed by the new creation, that we are new in Christ. That there is now no more Jew nor Greek, but that we are one in Jesus Christ and we boast not in ourselves. During his earthly ministry, Jesus tells a story about two men in the temple. Two men. One stands far off beating his chest saying, I'm not worthy. He won't even look up to heaven. He looks at the ground beating his chest and another guy stands off on the other side away from him, doesn't want to even be near this guy. And he said, Lord, I've done all this stuff. Look at all these good things I've done and thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. The other guy beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Christ says, which one of them walked away forgiven? Which one of them walked away redeemed? The man who had humility and looked to the Lord and not to himself. Friends, our acceptance into this covenant community, the church, the people of God, is not based on our personal effort. But our inclusion is based on God, His will, His work. Church, the Bible states that you are the circumcision. That you are the people of God. So how then shall we live as these people? How should we live knowing that we are the circumcision, that we are the people of God first? Understand that you are the people of God. Understand that the church is the circumcision. They are the chosen people of God. Paul says, you are the circumcision. There's two different words he uses in Greek. He says, you are the circumcision, and the Judaizers, they are the mutilators of the flesh. He calls the Judaizers the mutilators. He calls the church the circumcision. In Romans 2.9, he says, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. Tom Schreiner says of this passage in Romans, he says, this means that those who are saved are counted as God's people despite their lack of ceremonial circumcision. Belonging to God's people is no longer dependent on physical circumstances, but of an inward circumcision brought about by the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2, 11 through 14. You were also circumcised in Christ with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh he made you alive with Him, forgave all of our trespasses. He erased a certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us, taking it away by nailing it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross. Friends, every single one of us was born dead in sin in uncircumcision of our flesh, But it took a God who is sovereign and merciful to make you alive, to circumcise your heart with a circumcision, not with hands. When you were converted and the sovereign work of God took place in your heart, when that heart of stone was removed that we read at the beginning, and that heart of flesh was put in, you were added to this covenant community, to the people of God. You were added and included in the promises of God. You were added to Abraham's descendants. Friend, if you're looking for encouragement this morning, I have nothing else other than that. Nothing else other than this is what Christ has done. We boast in Him and He has added us to this covenant community through His work and nothing we have done. Hands down, i got no chicken soup for the soul this morning, folks. That's all I've got. Understand that God has an elect people and you are a member of it. You are an heir to this promise and you are a child of the King. Second, as the church, watch out for ditches of legalism and antinomianism. Legalism and antinomianism. Philippians teaches us that we cannot boast in our effort. We cannot add anything to what Christ has done. We can do nothing to be found in right standing with God. We have to look to Christ's righteousness alone. I can't add anything to Christ's work. You can't add anything to Christ's work. Our good works account for nothing. We are saved by Christ alone. But Philippians also teaches us that we are to live lives worthy of the gospel. The fact that we cannot earn our salvation doesn't mean we can live any way which which we want. We are called to live worthy of the gospel and know that God is completing the good work in us that He began. We saw that in the first chapter of Philippians. The New Testament is clear that we are to pursue holiness because of what Christ has done, not to earn His favor. As the reformer said, you are saved by Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So avoid the ditches of legalism and antinomianism as a part of this covenant community. Third, watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false teachers. False teachers teach false theology. Whether it be the Judaizer, Bethel Church, or female pastors... There will always be someone seeking to subvert what the Bible teaches and to draw God's people away. They are with us until the Lord comes back. Watch out for them. Stick with good doctrine. Test every teaching by God's word. Have Bibles open on your lap while I preach. That actually makes me happy. Have your Bible open. Test everything coming out of my mouth by what's sitting in your lap, God's Word. But also, false teachers teach false ethics. Some people say they want to honor God by defending sound doctrine, yet they disobey Him by turning into theology warriors with their theology six gun ready to whip it out and blast someone in the chest over minute unessential doctrines. They're always scanning the internet looking for someone to be enraged about. They're always looking for things. They're always sending you things saying like, have you seen this? Have you seen what they're doing in Massachusetts? Have you seen what they're doing in New Mexico? Again, stick to what the Bible teaches by avoiding quarrelsome people. Test everything by God's Word to include ethics and conduct. From the Ten Commandments to the New Testament, God's people are to love God and love people. Love God by your obedient worship and lifestyle, following His Word. Love people by following the Bible's instruction and understanding that we are a people who are marked by love and sacrifice and selflessness, or should be. Fourth, ask yourself, does this glorify Christ? Does this glorify Christ? Is this thing I'm saying, is this thing I'm doing, does it glorify Christ as I am called to glorify Christ as the circumcision, as God's people? Does your kindness and being a cup of cold water in Jesus' name glorify Christ? Yes. Does standing firm on God's truth glorify Christ? Yes. True worship glorifies Christ. Walking worthy glorifies Christ boasting in Christ, mortifying your sin, all of these glorify Jesus, the one who died for you. When you decide to do something, ask yourself, does this glorify Christ? Does my exaggeration on my tax returns glorify Christ? Just fudging the numbers just a little bit so I can get a little extra back this year, does that glorify Jesus? Just talking poorly about another image bearer, Exalt the God who became flesh for me. Does gossip glorify Christ? Do snarky posts online in the name of Jesus glorify Jesus? I was once in my, one of my many tongue lashings that I have received over the last few years. I was receiving an irate tongue lashing once from a church member, and I asked this man who was red faced and angry, Friend, what are you reading in your Bible right now that tells you what you are doing is okay? And he said, Well, it may not be okay, but it's justified. Really? Does that glorify Christ? Of course, cowardice does not glorify Christ, but neither does an unbridled tongue. As a circumcision, we are called to glorify Christ in our word and our deed and to live like we truly belong to the King, to walk worthy of the gospel. Friends, the church is the people of God, are the people of God. God's people worship by the Spirit of God. God's people boast in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. The Church are God's people. They are true descendants of Abraham. God said during his earth, Christ said during his earthly ministry that there is coming a day when people would come from every nation to eat at Abraham's table. And while there will always be a remnant of believing physical descendants of God's people, what distinguishes one as God's family, as God's people is faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is what distinguishes you as God's people. This is not what some call replacement theology, friends. This is what we call fulfillment. Fulfillment of God's promises. Every promise in the Scripture finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled the promise He made to Abraham that all the world would be blessed by Him in Jesus Christ. God fulfilled this promise in Christ, the eternal King who will rule and reign forever, the descendant of David. All of the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ's church. You are the people of God. Father, we thank you for your word that we might know who you are and who we are. And we know that who we are are fallen sinners that are saved by your grace alone. And that we can only come to you and pray now through Christ's shed blood and through his rent flesh. God, I pray that we would walk worthy as a church. God, I pray that if there's any among us that have not yet trusted Christ, that you would mercifully draw them to yourself. God, that they would turn and repent, believe the gospel. God, I pray that you would grant them no sleep until they do. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.